0: Well, please turn with me to Genesis 22, and uh, we're in the book of Genesis. Last week, we looked at uh, Abraham and God's confirming of his promise and covenant with Abraham there as he tells him what's going to happen with, with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, the, prom- the continued promise of, of a son, and that was in Genesis 18, Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then uh, we've, in Genesis 21, you see the arrival of Isaac, God fulfills his promise to Abraham with the birth of Isaac and that brings us to Genesis chapter 22 and if you're able to this morning if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together Genesis 22 and I'll begin in verse 1. After these things God tested Abraham and said to him Abraham and he said here I am he said take your son I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. You may be seated and may God encourage us through reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we do recognize your your absolute otherness from us in, in the sense that you are our sovereign. You are a God above all gods. You are a, a God who fills the expanse of the universe with your rule and authority and power, and we're in awe of that. And we thank you that you are the God who provides for us. You're an all-sufficient sovereign king who provides for us and you provided for your servant Abraham and you provide for us today and we pray for your continued provision. We pray for the provision of your grace for those who are hurting this morning. We pray that they would find you lovely, that they would delight in you, that you would provide your special grace for them. We pray for those who are lonely, that they would find their ultimate joy and and satisfaction in you today, this week, and we pray for us as we we struggle with uh, this text and what it means for our lives and how we're to respond to you. Help us to think rightly about it, to trust in you, and to manifest our our trust in you in in radical ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. What is going on in this story? Why? Would God ask Abraham to do something like this? And why in the world would Abraham even consider being obedient to what God has asked him to do here? What What is going on with this story? This is a story that has troubled philosophers and theologians and people of faith for thousands of years. It's the most famous story from Abraham's life. And for many, it is the most perplexing. A couple hundred years ago, there was a philosopher who was writing about this this story, and he was trying to to wrestle with what Abraham would have been thinking and and, and saying as he went up the mountain with his son. And so this philosopher imagines a conversation between Abraham and Isaac as they walk up the mountain. He imagines Abraham telling Isaac, uh, Isaac, it wasn't God who told me to do this. I am an idolater, I've just decided to do this myself. And Isaac begins to cry out to God for protection and Abraham in his mind, the philosopher imagines Abraham saying, thank you God, at least my son now considers me a monster but doesn't doubt you. That's what this philosopher was struggling to understand in this story. How could, how could God ask Abraham to do this, and how could Isaac understand, if Abraham told him anything, how could Isaac understand God's character, and, and how can we? I think by implication, the philosopher was, was asking, how can we understand the character of a God who would ask this of Abraham? It, it's a tough story, and there's parts of it that are very unsettling. But let me suggest, without trying to oversimplify what's happening here and the tough, the tough parts of the story, let me suggest to you that the good news is the main point of the story comes through very clearly and is, is very simple as it teaches us about faith. And perhaps one of the reasons we struggle with this story is because we have a very weak understanding of, of what faith is our perception of faith is very anemic, very lackluster. We use the term faith so, so casually, so cavalierly. It's such a commonplace thing. And we say things like, well, I have faith. And what we mean is I just pray to prayers. So I pray this prayer and I have faith. Or I have faith. That means I kind of have a set of beliefs and they don't really affect what I do, but I have these, these little tiny sets of beliefs over here about what I believe about God. And that, that's my faith. Or we use uh, the term faith to describe um, things that we want God to do, and, and we think of faith as kind of like a magic potion. So we say, "Well, I have faith that God is going to bless this this business venture that I've I've gotten into," and so I I've entered into this business, and I keep saying, well, I have faith that God is, is going to, to bless this, and, and faith just means this, this magic thing that I think God is going to do because I want him to do it, or maybe there's a relationship, and I have, I have faith that this relationship is going to, to work out the way that I want it to, and, um, you know, just this thing I, I have. And our understanding of faith can be so, so casual. We can use that term faith so such a commonplace way and, and not very carefully. As we look at this text this morning, I hope it challenges your conception of faith. I hope it confronts some, some misunderstandings that maybe you have about faith, some, some dangerous and wrong ideas you might have about faith. As, as we encounter this story, we see that faith isn't some tool I can use to wield God and, and, and make him do what I, I want. Uh, faith isn't some momentary state of being like, for a moment I have faith or I have belief. It's not, it's not that. And, and faith isn't, faith isn't just some, something that's separated from what I do. As we encounter this text, we see something more profound of what, about what true biblical faith is. As we look at this text, what I, I hope we, we gather is that biblical faith isn't just about some, some moment of belief, or faith isn't just about some, some casual thing that I say that I possess. But no, what we see here is that biblical faith means a lifetime, a lifetime of frightening, delight fueled obedience. Biblical faith is going to produce a lifetime of, of frightful obedience, of, of, of obedience of frightening proportions, and, and biblical faith is going to produce obedience that's, that's fueled by my delight in God. Biblical faith produces a lifetime of delight-fueled, frightening obedience. That's what I want us to kind of think about as we think about this text together this morning. And if we're here in Genesis 22, let me kind of remind you a little bit of the context in Genesis twelve, God appears to Abraham, and he tells him to leave all that he's known, his, his culture, his people, this land and he tells him to go to a land that he's going to show him and he, and he promises Abraham some things and then in Genesis fifteen he he affirms those promises to Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis fifteen and then we have the the circumcision the sign of this covenant in Genesis 17 and and God continues to promise Abraham these things and and Abraham continues to believe in what God has promised and these promises become this the source of great hope Abraham builds his entire life around these promises that God has made now Paul in Romans Romans 4 whenever he's talking about Abraham's life he says look I want you to remember the the chronology of events. I want you to remember, says Paul, I want you to remember the order in which things happen. There's the promise in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis 15 there's the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And remember, says Paul, that Abraham heard what God was promising and he believed God and God, the text says, Reckoned it to him as righteousness. In other words, he, he took Abraham's faith and he, he credited it to Abraham's account like he had been righteous. It wasn't Abraham's work, it was God's work. God takes Abraham's faith and he reckons it to him as righteousness. And then, and then Paul says, later, you have the sign of the covenant given in Genesis 17, circumcision. And Abraham says, Look, what I want you to understand is that circumcision, the sign of the covenant, isn't what made Abraham righteous. Abraham was, was righteous, declared righteous by God on the basis of faith. Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. And now we're in Genesis 22, which comes even later. And what we need to understand is that what happens in Genesis 22 is not what causes Abraham to be justified. What happens in Genesis 22, though, flows out of Abraham's faith, the faith that God reckoned to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. That that faith fuels all the other events that take place in Abraham's life, including what happens here in Genesis 22. This shocking story should help us grasp what faith is, what biblical faith means, and, and what biblical faith produces. Biblical faith, we see here, as we look at this, this foundational passage, a, an event described in Scripture that should make us very, very uncomfortable, what we see here is that biblical faith produces a lifetime of delight-fueled and frightening obedience. Obedience. So let's, let's look at this. Let's look at about some, some things about faith from this passage, some things we understand. The first is this. Biblical faith does not mean my life will be easy. Faith does not mean that my life will be easy. Now, let's think about the text here. As you look at verse 1 of Genesis 22, it it should look somewhat familiar to you because what's happening here in Genesis 22 is very similar to what's happened earlier in Abraham's life in Genesis 12. Abraham has not had a very easy life thus far. In Genesis 12, again, God calls him to leave his land, his people, his culture. And he says, go to this place that I'm going to show you. And he doesn't specify exactly where it's going to be. And he tells him, if if you go here, there's some, some promise that awaits you. And Abraham goes, and he doesn't receive the promise immediately, does he? He has to wait a long time to even begin to see the fruits of fulfillment. And in the meantime, difficult things happen to Abraham. He's called to continue to believe God in the midst of these difficult things. He encounters problems with his wife. He encounters problems with other people. He encounters problems with servants. He encounters problem after problem. And what does he do? He continues to believe God. And as he waits for the promise, and, and God continues to promise the promises become his new everything. He, he believes in God, and these, these promises become what he, what he builds his life around. Now, in Genesis 21, Isaac is born. The promise has been fulfilled. So in Genesis 12, he's called to leave it all. He's called, leave. God appears to Abraham. He says, Here I am. God says, leave all this. Go to someplace new. He does that. He has been faithful for decade after decade after decade. The promises finally begun to be fulfilled in Genesis 21, and now in Genesis 22, there's a new call. Same as the first, leave it all. Give it up again. It's an astonishing instruction that God gives here. In fact, look at the text with me if you would, and, and notice that there's, there's three things that God commands here says, take your son, that's the first command, and he elaborates on which son he's talking about, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That's the first instruction. It's it's painful in the the detail that he gives here, right? Take this son. The second command is to go, go to the land of Moriah, and that land of Moriah is the same area in which Solomon would build the temple. Remember in 2 Chronicles, it talks about how Solomon built the temple on the Mount of Moriah, and so he used to go to that same location, that same area. And then the third instruction the third instruction is very specific. It's as specific as it is horrifying. He says, Go to the place and there offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now remember, the, the burnt offering one of the earliest sacrifices we see in scripture we saw it in earlier in genesis in the story of noah and a burnt offering would have been this this blood sacrifice where the the total the total sacrifice was was consumed by fire it's a blood offering now what would abraham have understood god to be saying here tim keller in his book counterfeit gods i think offers some good perspective now we have to understand the culture in which abraham is living in this culture the, the oldest son, the firstborn son, represented everything for the family. The, the firstborn son was the hope of the family. And God, as we encounter him here in the beginning of, of, of Scripture, we see him calling the people of Israel to recognize that their firstborn sons belong to him. These, these firstborn sons, as representatives of the family, serve as, as people who bear the responsibility for the guilt, the sin of the family. So, for example... Exodus 22 God says the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me Exodus 34:20 the firstborn of your sons you you must redeem the, the 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 oldest son represents the the hope and the future of the family and, and due to the sins of the family the the firstborn sons bear the culpability of that sin and as Abraham hears God instructing him to offer his son Isaac, it's more than God just saying, hey, um, go kill Sarah. It's, it's different than God just saying, hey, go murder a servant or go stab your son. What God is saying to Abraham is, I'm calling in my debt. What you owe me because of the sins of the family, I'm, I'm coming to collect. The firstborn son is mine, and, and I'm, I'm calling to collect my debt. And that's what Abraham would have understood God to have been saying here. Give me back that which is mine. Now what does Abraham say? He doesn't tell us that he says anything. He just begins to obey. Gets up early, saddles the donkey, takes two young men, takes Isaac, gets some wood, and begins to to obey. I don't know all the story, as I mentioned last week, about every person's life, but, but here have a good idea based on the, the deal that we do know about what God is doing here. In other words, at any individual moment in any person's life, it, it's hard for me to know, okay, here's exactly how God is working this for his good and, or for his glory and our good. But I know something here. And I hope you'll agree with me as we go through this text that what God is doing to Abraham right now is very merciful. I think I'll be able to, to show that as we go through the story. But imagine walking up to Abraham as he's preparing the donkey, he's gathering the wood, and you go up to Abraham You say, what's going on? And he tells you what God has instructed him to do. And you say to Abraham, wow, how merciful of God. Abraham would laugh at you with a laugh of scorn and derision and pain. Merciful. (laughs) What God is asking Abraham to do, again, I'm going to suggest to you as we go on this morning, what Abraham is being asked to do by God is very merciful, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And one of the things we fail to rightly understand about faith is that, that faith faith does not propel us to a greater ease of life. Faith often propels us into more and more difficult circumstances. Maybe you saw uh, Pastor Ben on his uh, Facebook page has a, um, a video on there right now of, of a little little guy named Bailey Matthews, an eight-year-old with cerebral palsy who's completing a, a triathlon. Maybe, maybe you saw that. I, I thought about showing it, but um, I wouldn't be able to. to I, I tear up every time I watch this, this, this little video. And uh, Bailey is, you know, again, this eight-year-old and his father is, has done this little triathlon with Bailey. And he's even designed this uh, kind of thing for Bailey to hold on to as, as he makes his way through the running portion of the triathlon. And this is the very end, and the finish line is maybe 30 yards away, and the crowds are beginning to really cheer for Bailey, and Bailey just has this look of excitement on his face, and he's so jazzed by the crowd's enthusiasm that he lets go of the walker, and he begins to, to run toward the finish line on his unsteady feet, and then wham, he hits the ground and your heart just breaks. And you see his dad right next to him, and his dad does nothing. He doesn't catch him as he falls, and he doesn't help him get up. And in that, in that moment, as you see the dad do that, you instinctively know that is some good parenting. And then Bailey gets up again, runs a couple more steps, and wham, again, falls gets up and runs and crosses the finish line. And the joy and the exuberance on Bailey's faith far exceeds the cost of some bruises. A loving father sometimes allows his children to go through very difficult circumstances for their greater growth and good and development because there's a greater purpose in protecting our children from pain. And a good dad, a good mom, understands how to balance that. Bailey's dad could have stepped in and said, you know, we're not doing a triathlon. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Or you know, let me hold you and, and you know, it doesn't matter if you get disqualified or whatever. I'm just going to prevent you from any pain. Be careful what you think faith will do. Faith isn't going to make you taller. It's not going to make you prettier. It's not going to make you more popular. And, and none of those things are what God ultimately wants for you anyway. Faith Faith is going to mean, in fact, your life will become more difficult as you follow God. And that brings us to the second thing. Faith means this. Faith means trusting in God. Faith means trusting in God. Now notice here it says, again look at your text, it says in verse 4, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and there are so many phrases here that occur multiple times in the text. So Abraham lifting up his eyes occurs multiple times. Uh, Abraham responding to God and responding to, to um, uh, God twice and his son once saying, here I am, and, and you see um, Abraham and his son being mentioned together multiple times. And in, in this passage, just in these few verses here, these five verses, you see Abraham and Isaac's relationship, as father and son, being highlighted. So, for example, Abraham lays the wood on Isaac, his son, it says in verse 6. And he took his hand, and his hand the knife and the fire, and they, they go together. And Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham says, I am my son. And in verse 8, he refers to Isaac as my son, that this, this relationship is being highlighted. There's there's over and over in phrases that highlight what's happening in the passage. And Abraham here has a, a confidence in God providing. We see this in multiple ways. He, he doesn't just have an abstract belief that, ah, things will work out okay, I guess. Abraham has a confidence in God in God, in a person. It's not some abstract belief. It's a belief in a person, a belief in God. He tells the servants, we're going to worship. And he's not saying, we're going to go up there and just kind of have a party, or we're just going to go up there and I'm going to kill my son. There's an understanding on Abraham's part that as he goes there, he's going to engage in worship. He's going to recognize the greatness of God and respond to it in worship. That's what's going to take place. He has confidence in God that that's what's going to occur. He also has confidence that he and Isaac are going to return together. We're going to come again to you. And then as he talks to Isaac, he has absolute confidence that God will provide. God will provide for himself. Now, Abraham doesn't know how God is going to do that, but God Abraham believes is going to provide, and Abraham is going to worship him. In Romans 4, the writer of Romans, Paul, here here talks about the content of Abraham's faith being in the person of God. It says, he says this is promised to him in the the presence of God in whom he believed. So it's, it's not just a belief about God, it's a belief in God. God who, this is about his character, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the person that Abraham is believing in. He's believing in that person's capability, the one who who, uh, brought all things into existence, things that didn't exist. He caused them to exist, gives life to the dead. It says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Again, this is Romans 4, 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, and who delivered up for our trespasses, him, and raised him for our justification. Abraham Trusts God. The writer of Hebrews says he considered that God was able to to raise him from the dead, raise Isaac from the dead. He believed in the person of God. You, You can't separate the promises of God from the person of God. Abraham's belief here is not, you know, Disney belief, wishing upon a magic star. It's not. It's not some fairy tale belief. I'm just going to have faith. It's not it's not um, self esteem belief. I'm just going to believe in myself. It's it's not vague. It's not abstract. It's not miracle on 34th Street. I just believe this is going to happen, and there's Santa Claus. It's it's not George Michael faith. You got to have faith of faith of faith. I mean, it's it's none of those things. This kind of faith is is a confidence in a person in God. That brings us to the third thing, faith. Faith means obeying God. Faith means obeying God. We come here to verse 9. It says that the people Abraham and Isaac came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order and, and bound Isaac. And, and here in these verses, we see the most, perhaps in all of Scripture, vivid example from a, from a person who's not God, a vivid example of obedience, of faith, the obedience of faith in all of scripture here and he lays him on the altar on top of the wood and by the way as you go through uh, chapter 22 in in the hebrew text you kind of see this this happened and this happened and then this happened and this happened and, happen. and then and then the, the, Moses uses some some words here to kind of draw our attention to this moment it kind of Stands still in, in time and space as he reaches for the knife to, to slaughter his son. And that word slaughter is even a word used to describe what's done to the sacrificial animals. And there's just this, this pause. What's going to happen as Abraham is obedient? And here's the shocking part of the story for us. That, that Abraham is willing to, to do this. And the very shocking nature of what Abraham is willing to do. Should convey this truth to us. This is how genuine faith manifests itself. Genuine faith produces obedience. If I truly believe in God, not just believe about some facts about God, not just have these little Prayers that I say or a couple doctrinal beliefs that don't really affect my action. But if I have truly come to the person of God and encountered him in Scripture and believed what he said about who he is and and about his, his right and authority in my life, then obedience flows from that. If I truly believe that obedience flows from that, frightening obedience flows from that. But we have to be so careful. Let me just say this. We have to be so careful not to get the, the order of things mixed up. In other words, it's not obedience that causes faith. I don't say, you know what, I want to be obedient to God, so, so you know, give me some rules. What rules do I follow? Let me, let me follow these rules and show God that I, I have faith by, by doing these rules. It, it doesn't work like that. I come to God first, and then as I come to God, then obedience and believe in Him, then obedience flows from that. And, and let me read you. Let me read you some New Testament passages that help us understand what's happening here. First of all, the writer of of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, as he talks about Abraham's faith, he says, he begins the the chapter, Hebrews 11, in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendations. And he goes on and he talks about that. And then verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city, the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Then we come to verse seventeen of Hebrews eleven. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him, that's Isaac, from the dead, by, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, faith here for Abraham was manifested in his absolute obedience to God. He came to God and he believed what God had said concerning Isaac and his promises about Isaac and he was willing to be obedient to God because he absolutely believed that what God said to be true was true. That even if he offered up his son as a burnt offering before the Lord, God would be faithful in caring for Isaac, and through Isaac, the nations of the earth would be blessed. James, and James 2, looks at this story as... as his foundational story to help us understand how works manifest themselves in our lives. In James two twenty one it says, "Was not Abraham our father justified?" And, and justified here in James two refers, I believe, to justification before people. In other words, uh, our faith being demonstrated and, and proved in front of others. He says, "Was not Abraham our faith justified? Was not his faith proved by works?" when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, this event that happened in Genesis 15, where Abraham was declared righteous before God, the validity of that was was proven in Genesis 22, as everyone saw, displayed Abraham's faith in God. This faith produced obedience. Now, don't don't get confused. Obedience does not produce faith, but faith yields the fruit of obedience. And if you do not have a faith that produces obedience, you don't have a biblical faith. You say, well, Daniel, that is scary. It is. Then you say, well, I want to be obedient, and I struggle with obedience. What's the answer? It feels like, like sin sometimes just dominates my life how how do i how do i deal with that how do i wrestle with that if if faith is supposed to be producing obedience if faith means obeying god and i'm not obe- obedient to god what, what does that mean about my faith what does that mean about my relationship with god and there's so much to unpack there but let me go deeper let's let's go one step deeper as we talk about faith because faith d- does mean a life of difficulty and, and faith does mean trusting in god and faith means obeying god but let's Let's go deeper. Here's the fourth thing that I want you to understand. Faith means delighting in God. Is it true that faith means obedience? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but how do we be obedient? How, how can, is it just, okay, I'm going to really try this, this week to be obedient because I want to have faith. And, and No, that's, that's legalism. That's obedience producing faith. Here's why faith means obeying God. Because faith means delighting in God. Let me unpack this, and we'll also see why this is such a merciful thing that God does. So we're in verse 11 here. The angel calls to Abraham. He says, Abraham, Abraham. Again, Abraham responds, here I am. And the angel says, don't lay your hand on him. Don't do anything. And then he says, for now I know that you fear God. What does God say has just happened through his messenger here? He says, I know that you fear God. And What does that mean to have fear? Well, it means to, to love and have delight, really, we see in the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses would say, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. In other words, the essence of obedience is about knowing and loving and fearing God, to encountering the person of God and loving him and saying, because of my love for you and my my fear for you, I'm going to be obedient to you. I'm going to see your incredible delight and, and beauty and, indeed, This is the great goal of faith, brothers and sisters. This is the great goal of faith. The great goal of faith is that I would come to God and delight in him as I recognize his supreme value over everything. As I see his supreme value over money, as I see his supreme value over prestige, as I see his supreme value over even my children, that I would look upon his beauty and delight in him. And as I said last week, as we talked about God and his character, how God loves righteousness, he delights in righteousness, therefore he always does what is in accordance with delight. With a righteousness because he delights in it. The same is true in my relationship with God. If I come to God and I delight in him and I see his value over all things, what is that going to mean? That is going to mean obedience as I follow after him again and again and again because I find him beautiful. And so what does that mean for, for this, this event in Abraham's Life, this is the most important life transforming truth you and I can consider. What it means is that God's intervention here in Abraham's life is an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy because think about what has taken place in Abraham's life. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, Leave it all. And and Abraham does. And these new promises of God. Become Abraham's hope. He believes these things are going to happen. And so he he does all these things. And now in Genesis 21, here's Isaac. Here's the promise. Here, here's, here's this baby. Here's this, this, this child. And brothers and sisters, here's the danger for, for Abraham that God mercifully saves him from. Abraham's danger is that he could begin to delight in the blessing instead of the one who provided the blessing. Abraham's danger is that he can become to, he can begin to have an idolatrous affection for the blessing instead of continuing to delight in the one who gave the blessing, and God mercifully saves Abraham from that and allows Abraham to rightly respond and see that God's value is supreme over everything. I mentioned uh, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, and uh, Tim Keller suggests that One of the central principles of the Bible is is rejecting idolatry. And, And here's what he writes. He says, the Bible is filled with story after story depicting innumerable forms and the devastating effects of idol worship. Every counterfeit God, a heart can choose, whether money or love, success, power. Every counterfeit God has a powerful biblical narrative that explains how that particular form of idolatry works itself out in our lives. I think Keller is exactly right. And what God graciously does here is tell Abraham, delight in me. Delight in me. I'm the ultimate. An easy faith is is a cheap faith that doesn't allow me to see the beauty and the value of God. Far better to avoid idolatry and encounter the beauty of God and to live a life of ease, where we don't, we aren't forced to confront the value we place on God and, and His ultimate beauty. See, God in His mercy is going to continue to do this in your life as well. As you say, okay, my faith is in God. It's going to cause you in, to, to come into more and more difficult situations. And over and over again in your life, there's going to be these moments where here's God and here's delighting in God and God is going to allow something else to get placed in juxtaposition to him. It's placed right next to him and you're going to have to make a decision. Where is your delight? Is my delight in God or is it in power? Is my delight in God or is it in my job? Is my delight in God or is it in my friends? Is my delight in God or is it in lust? Is my delight in God or is it in greed? Is my delight in God or whatever it is, fill in the blank. And God is going to mercifully, as you pursue him, he is going to continue to force you to choose and see his value over all things. And if you want to know the secret to living obediently before God, to living a a life free from sin, it it is this, continue to delight in him. Continue to see his value above all other substitutes, all other counterfeits, all other idols, all other temptations. The beauty of God over all things That's what we see here in the story. Now, when you see this this too, right? When you see this too, God offers this provision. If you look at verse 13, it says, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So here's his son. God says, no, this was just a test. It's confirmed that that you fear me, that you delight in me. Now, offer this ram instead of it's substitutionary. This 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 ram is offered up instead of your son. And here's here's the truth we know. Why was that acceptable? It was acceptable because the ram was also just a stand-in, a temporary substitute for the son who would be sacrificed in that same area. Because remember Moriah is some believe that the the place where Abraham was is actually the the, where the, the Dome of the Rock sits now, this, this place in Jerusalem. But in this same region, the same area, some almost 2,000 years later, another son would be sacrificed. It's the Son of God, the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. Our ultimate delight. The promises, God's covenant promises here are expanded upon. The angel of the Lord declares... Abraham and your offspring, he reiterates the promises, expands on them, you're in your offspring, and ultimately we you know that's in the Messiah, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Hebrews 6 talks about the story in Abraham's life, and he says, as he talks about God's, God's promising by himself here in Genesis 22, not only does he promise by himself, but he offers the sacrifice himself that allows Abraham to, deliverance here and Isaac deliverance and then he says this in verse 18 we have confidence we who have fled this is Hebrews chapter 6 who have fled for refuge we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, how can you hope to be obedient? We have this anchor to our soul, Jesus Himself, the sacrifice that was offered on our behalf in our place, whom God did raise from the dead, and we have this this anchor for our soul, that this person of Jesus that we can we can trust in in every circumstance. Abraham had the ability to be obedient in this in this situation because he had an anchor for his soul as god calls you to the difficult life of obedience time and time again you can have confidence of obedience because you have an anchor for your soul and your 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 soul your heart your being all that you are can delight in the person of jesus the faith that god has called us to it's not some prayer we pray one time it's not a set of beliefs we kind of set on the little in a box over here on a shelf the faith that God has called us to is is a frightening faith because the things that he calls us to do are things we would not have the bravery to do on our own. And the faith that he calls us to is a faith that produces obedience that is fueled by delight, by delight in him. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this. we, We pray that you'd help us to worship you rightly as we think about who you are and we worship you in all things. Help us to delight in your son, Jesus. And even as we we sing this this song now, help us to rightly recognize the unique place of Jesus in our life, that he's not just some God we put next to all the other gods in our life, that he is a God who reigns supreme over all things. Help us to trust in him as our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.